Thank you for joining us for another podcast from the Commonwealth Club. Hi, everybody. Welcome. My name is Lauren Silver, and I am the Vice President of Education at the Commonwealth Club. So I am very happy to welcome all of our speakers and welcome our audience here tonight for this second program in our Creating Citizens Speaker Series at UC Berkeley. This is a collaboration between the Commonwealth Club and two campus groups, the ASUC Vote Coalition and the University of California National Center for Free Speech and Civic Engagement. For those of you who don't know the Commonwealth Club, we are the oldest and largest nonpartisan public affairs forum in the U.S. We were founded in 1903, which means that we're celebrating our 120th anniversary this year in 2023. Every year, we host hundreds of programs with leaders and influencers in conversation about diverse and wide-ranging topics, ranging from politics to education, climate to social justice, entertainment, culture, and more. And we have a number of special options for students and for educators, including low-cost memberships and free tickets to some of our programs. And each year from May through August, graduating students can get a one-year membership for free. We'd love to welcome you to more of our programs. So please visit our website, which is commonwealthclub.org to learn more about these and other opportunities. There's also information on the small half-page handout that's at your seat. Creating Citizens is the Commonwealth Club's civics education initiative, building on foundational values of civility, Mutual respect and informed action, creating citizens engages youth and adults in meaningful civil dialogue about important contemporary issues so that we can all become active, informed participants in our shared democracy. We're grateful to the Correct Foundation for their generous support of creating citizens and for their dedication to improving the quality of civics education in California and beyond. And now I am very happy to introduce Alex Edgar, director of the ASUC Vote Coalition and campus host for our program today. Alex is a second year student at Berkeley studying political science with a minor in public policy. He was recently elected external affairs vice president of UC Berkeley's student government and is the recipient of the John Lewis, John Lewis Youth Leadership Award from the National Association of Secretaries of State. He's passionate about developing policy solutions to major social problems in order to create education systems and democratic institutions that are more responsible to, responsive to the will and needs of the American people. More than anything, he loves working with his peers to inspire Gen Z to become the most civically engaged generation in American history. We fully support this. Please welcome Alex, who will introduce our speakers. Well, thank you so much for that overly kind introduction, Lauren. Um, and again, my name is Alex Edgar, and I'm the director of the ASUC Vote Coalition. And we are so very deeply grateful to the Commonwealth Club of California for their endless support in this program and their dedication to uplifting youth voices and civic engagement. This program began as a late night idea in my dorm room last year, and since then, it has blossomed into this incredible program that reaches hundreds of students each semester. Enough about us. Now, I have the immense honor of introducing our panelists. 
First, we have former California State Controller and current Vice Chair of the California Democratic Party, Betty Yee, a native of San Francisco. Yeah, give her some applause. She deserves it. <laughs> a native of San Francisco and a proud product of its public schools, Betty was born to immigrant parents who built a laundry and dry cleaning business from scratch in the Parkside District of SF. Betty went on to graduate from UC Berkeley, Go Bears, then served over 30 years in state and local finance and tax policy, elected twice to the California State Board of Equalizations, and then, of course, her other positions. And then second, we have former Oakland mayor and interim executive director of Emerge California, Libby Schaff. Born and raised in Oakland, Libby has led a long career in public service, from her years as an attorney to Oakland City Council to mayor of Oakland from 2015 to 2023, where she fought to raise the minimum wage, increase government transparency and efficiency, improve public safety, and reform the police department. Then we have two incredible student activists and leaders from campus. First being Isabella Romo is a junior community organizer and political activist currently studying politics at UC Berkeley. She is the director of federal government relations uh, for the ASUC and a national organizing project manager with the Social Equity Through Education Alliance. Isabella has helped scale several nonprofits in the social justice space and is currently teaching a course on campus about organizing. Then we also have Owen Knapper Jr., a UC Berkeley freshman political science major with a minor in race and the law. Let's give him a round of applause. Owen is an equity, inclusion, and belonging associate in the ASUC and a black student union intern who works diligently to make higher education more accessible to BIPOC and non-traditional students. And without further ado, I'd like to invite our panelists to the stage, and I hope you guys enjoy this talk. Hi, everyone. Thank you all for joining us today. We're so happy to have you. And thank you again to our lovely speakers who joined us on our campus. It's always great to welcome amazing leaders to meet with students and also share their perspectives. And so we're super excited to chat about so many important topics related to democracy and being civically engaged. And so to start us off, I'd like to just ask all of us, who or what inspired you to first become civically engaged? I had a godmother named Mary Morris Lawrence. She was the first woman to be hired by the Associated Press as a photographer. And she wasn't just a photographer, although she loved telling people's stories through this visual medium. She was like addicted to curiosity. And just, just to always be asking, trying to get people's stories, understanding where they were coming from. But she brought me to my first League of Women Voters uh, meeting. My parents were not political at all, which was a good thing. And I heard Angela Glover Blackwell speak. And I'm like, I want to worship at her church. Uh, she just inspired me. She still inspires me to this day. So um, those are two women that really inspired me to be civically engaged. Mary Morris Lawrence, Angela Glover Backwell. And then my mom was my Girl Scout troop leader. So I did Girl Scouts. I did a lot of volunteering in my community. It's what helped me fall in love with my hometown. We were just, Jose and I were talking about how much we love our hometowns. Um, and what better way to fall in love than by doing community service? Perfect. Um, for myself, I can say that it started in high school. Um, I remember during COVID, 
And um, the mayor of the city of Rialto, who's the current mayor right now, Mayor Deborah Robertson, allowed me to work on her campaign as a volunteer. And from that experience, it gave me the opportunity to not only learn my community, but, you know, learn other people's struggles within the community and, you know, learn to love my community. Like you said, I feel like um, coming from the Inland Empire and learning the community, like the back of my hand was so important. And it made me know that, you know, my community is a jewel. So it started working on a campaign, text banking, and getting to learn my community, the street, the streets, as well as the people. So that's how it started for me. I mean, I feel like I have a very similar experience in the sense that um, I was inspired by my cultural community, but also the Mexican-American community, because I felt that being civically engaged was a duty that I owed to them um, and us, because it matters and it impacts our community greatly. And so I felt that being civically engaged, whether that's through voting or, you know, engaging students at my university and encouraging them to be civically engaged as well was in a way a service to my community. But also I will say that I don't think I knew what being civically engaged meant or was until my senior year of high school. Um, and so in that sense, my AP government teacher at the time, Mr. Adams, was definitely a big inspiration to me who encouraged me and my entire class to be civically engaged because he's the first person who, as an educator, explained to us what politics and government and civics was. And so that really, I think, was the starting point for me about really understanding what being civically engaged meant. Well, I would say hands down, my parents were the ones who inspired me to be civically engaged and really first out of necessity. Um, they're immigrants from China, non-English speaking. And I think for many of us, the common immigrant experience, uh, particularly for first generation, is to be that advocate you know, for our parents. And so uh, whether it was uh, representing them uh, before government agencies or even running a small business, a laundry and dry cleaning business in San Francisco, uh, interfacing with banks and with vendors and, you know, just kind of uh, all the things attendant to taking care of a business. And then as I grew older, um, you know, just getting started in that way, representing them, it really became apparent to me that uh, not everyone's voices get reflected. Um, and so uh, in so many ways, because of the opportunities that I uh, and my siblings were able to have, um, being civically engaged was a way to give back. Uh, and to be really appreciative of the opportunities that I have and and how um, just being a good citizen is about how we make sure those opportunities are available for, for everyone else. Perfect. So moving into the next question, whether it be volunteering in your community or serving the people in California and public office, what has been the most rewarding part of civically engaged, being civically engaged? Well, I'll, I'll, I have to say... Um, what I love about being civically engaged is just um, meeting people that you otherwise may not intersect with on your own. Um, and this is really important because I think as we live life, we often are so comfortable around people who are just like us. Um, but when you are either working on something for your community or looking at uh, being involved on a campaign, you just meet um, people from all different backgrounds. And it is so enriching. It is so enriching. And um, I hope that we are able to collectively think about being intentional about that because as I think about just some of the strife that we're experiencing now today as a society, um, you know, we make, I think they're, they're, with all the influences that we have in our lives, we're quick to make judgment about others. But when we can actually experience others uh, firsthand and be involved with them on, you know, a, a common concern, uh, it is nothing like 
um, just uh, being able to do uh, something for the public good with others who don't necessarily share your background or your journey? Um, I guess I'll talk about two things, like just general civic engagement. Like I hella love Oakland. I do. I love, it's a place of artists. It's a place of workers. Like it has a gritty authenticity where people don't mind getting dirt under their fingernails. It's a city of unapologetic social justice. And it is a city that defines itself and prides itself on inclusive diversity. And to grow up and feel connected to this whole community, it, it was almost spiritual for me. It gave me a sense of being connected to a greater whole, uh, a sense of family, a sense that these people in my city are all family. Um, so that's just kind of on a, almost a metaphysical level. On a very practical level, I cannot tell you how satisfying, and yes, sometimes it's hard, but how satisfying it is to work in local government. When you work in local government, you actually do get to change the world. Um, I have had these incredible experiences of being part of the U.S. delegation uh, to Habitat 3 in Ecuador or at COP 27 in, in Egypt last year. Or in, I was there for the Paris Accords. Like People are listening to cities more and more to even solve international problems. You can literally change the world from local government. And it is completely personal. I got a text the other day from Tiffany Lascano. Uh, I started a program my first year as mayor called The Brilliant Baby, where we give babies born to Medi-Cal eligible parents a $500 college savings account for their babies at birth and financial coaching for the parents. Tiffany uh, not only got that for her kids, Later, it helped connect her to this financial coach that helped her fix her credit score, connected to another program I brought to Oakland called Kiva Oakland that was able to give her a loan that she could never have gotten from a bank. Kiva is crowdsourced lending. She started the first Asian Pacific Islander uh, workers cooperative that makes lathes. This is her own business that is not only giving her pride of owning a business, but also preserving the culture of her people, by her people, for her people. And she just texted me. Um, she just became a homeowner, and her credit score is the highest that, that she could have ever dreamed of when she started this journey as a brilliant baby mom, you know, just eight years ago. That is so personal. And I, I have a million stories like that. You need to move on to someone else, but just you, you can change the world, but you change people's lives and you know them. And there's nothing more satisfying than that. Yes, I can agree with you. Um, I will say building that personal connection and getting, being able to, you know, respect that person's experience. You know, you never can fully understand what someone may be going through or how they got in the situation. But once you build a personal relationship with them and you learn to embrace their intersectionality, I feel like that's the best part. That's the most rewarding part of um, being engaged with the community, your hometown, is being able to build that relationship and the connection with them. Yeah, and I also just want to say it's very heartwarming to hear about your experiences in this sense because Owen and I, we both run 
Senate campaigns for the ACC now. He just wrapped his up last night and um, I finished up my term in the Senate last spring. But I think what was really rewarding, similar to your experiences, is that I was able to better connect with my community here on the campus, but also off the campus. And being able to hear from students that the resource that I created for the entire student body is actually something they felt they needed and were able to benefit from was so rewarding and encouraging for me to continue doing the work that I do. And so as a Cal student, you know, I have hope that Owen and I and other students will be able to have similar experiences as yours once we leave this amazing institution. But of course, I know you're a Cal alum. And so I was wondering, how did your experiences as a Cal at Cal shape you and your desire to run for public office? Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, when I was at Cal, um, I felt like I was at the United Nations. <laughs> it, it really was the first time I had been exposed to people from all over the world. And um, to be able to just learn about, um, you know, just people's experiences and to understand um, why they were here and what they wanted to bring back home to their native country um, really got me thinking about, you know, my own place here at Cal. And, and, and I think it's an ethic here. I mean, it's the Cal ethic about giving back. Um, and it was always there. I mean, I came in to the, on this, onto this campus with, you know, just a really high regard for service to begin with. I knew I was always going to go into public service. Uh, but just being here on campus um, really affirmed that for me, that, um, you know, here to have the exposure that I had to others, to have the, um, the the academic rigor of being able to really look at things critically, to understand that um, the world is not black and white, and that you know our job really as citizens of the world is to be sure that we are you know just creating those bridges where we can come together and and hopefully work together for the greater public good. And so um, I it, I had I had an envy when I got here, and it was just even more intense when I left here. And and I would say that my experience here, I, I was not a campus person. I actually commuted from San Francisco. Uh, my father became ill uh, when I was a junior, and uh, I did have to move back home. But I also worked because it was the only way I could support myself going through Cal. And um, and that taught me a lot in terms of uh, just you know what some of the barriers were also in terms of being able to have this uh, experience here on campus and to have just the richness of being around people from all over the world. So um, so I think it is an ethic that is um, part of uh, what makes this campus special among uh, all of the UCs. But um, I come back here and I say, I always look for every opportunity to come back. And I can tell just through the conversations I've had with some of you that that ethic is still very much alive and strong. Thank you so much for that story, Ms. Betty. I believe um, stories like that and experiences like that really builds you know, character within someone and perseverance, you know, to continue on like remembering their why, why, why they're here, what, what their purpose is for. So moving on into the next question, as a professor at Cal, this is for you, Ms. Libby, what inspires you the most about the students you teach and what characteristics do you think will be crucial for UC Berkeley students to become the next bold leaders on campus and in the world in general? Yeah, well, one thing, you do not have to wait to graduate from college to, like, take over the world <laughs> like, uh, or, or to have, you know, a political or civic impact. Um, just quickly, I know I'm not answering your question, but, you know, I'm from Oakland. We break rules all the time. Um, when I ran for mayor, I was a total long shot. I was running against an incumbent. There was no poll that ever showed me above third place for mayor. And why did I win? Because 
a majority of my volunteers were not old enough to vote. I had a ton of young people work on my campaign. I had a ton of undocumented people work on my campaign, people who themselves could not vote, but knew that they had the power to talk to others about what kind of leader do we want for our city? What are the issues that are important? To, to get on that phone, to knock on those doors, you do not have to have a college degree to do that. Um, so just don't, you don't have to wait to graduate, to, to change the world. Like you can do it right now. In fact, sometimes having a title, actually holding authority, um, makes your leadership more questionable. So just know you are leaders right now. Um, now you asked me how much I'm liking being a professor. Okay, I'm teaching one class. I don't know if that makes me a total professor, but I am loving it. And I'm loving it because I am easily learning as much, if not more, from the students as they are learning from me. Um, it is fun because I'm not a theorist. I'm telling like the real dirt on how things actually go down or in some cases went down um, on some Bay Area policy issues. Uh, so that's been fun. But uh, I, I've been teaching a class called The Role of Public-Private Partnerships in Systems Change. Because we need to be doing all of this to change the system, right? The system is not producing equity or justice right now. So this is a class about changing the system. And it's, it's been fun because we've brought in lots of real-world examples, but allowed students to take whatever issue they're passionate about, whatever change they'd like to see in the world, and apply the tools to that particular change. So I have loved doing it. I have not graded the papers yet. So I'll let you know after I've started grading papers, if they got it, I think they did. I have just absolutely loved it. I am so full of hope and confidence for the future of our world because of you. Thank you. Well, I'm hopeful for the future of our students, given that they're in your hands. <laughs> but for one, for one unit, one class, one unit. I might check that class out next semester. Uh, I'm sorry, it's, I think it's only graduate students, so. Okay. Okay, so Goldman School, it's in your future. Thank you. I'm speaking into existence. <laughs> yes. Well, this is a question for both of you, Libby and Betty. Uh -huh. And so what is your advice for women in college who are interested in working in government, a field historically dominated by men? Well, this is advice for anybody who is not a straight, cisgendered, white male. And for those of you who are, we love you too. I'm married to one. Uh, but let's just be honest, that culture has dominated um, the power structures, not just politics, but all power structures. And so this is what I say to you. If you have a moment where you are feeling uncomfortable because you are the only one who brings your life experience, your perspective, your appearance in a particular room, know that that is a moment to celebrate. Your discomfort means that that is the most important room for you to be in. Because our democracy can never meet its promise without being reflective of the beauty of our full population. We are not there yet. I am very proud, aside from teaching at Berkeley, I am running a great organization called Emerge California, which its sole purpose is to elect, it's how I first met Betty. Mm -hmm. 
sole purpose is to elect women or women identifying people into elective office with a focus on the new American majority, which is BIPOC, LGBTQ+, young women, unmarried women. So I'm very excited to be helping to bring a little parity into the political scene. Yeah. So I would say don't minimize what you bring to the table. And uh, and I say that because oftentimes I think young people don't believe they have, you know, the the experience, the network, you know, whatever it is that, you know, um, that people bring into the space, particularly of politics and for women especially, because, um, you know, we haven't been in these spaces for a long period of time. But um, I, I agree with Libby. I mean, it, it is going to take just all of us kind of being the first in these strange spaces that may seem strange at first to change kind of the, the paradigm. And one of the things that I really admire about um, Libby and, and some of the women with whom we've served is that um, they have been first, but they have never let up on their commitment to be sure they're not the last. And you hear our Vice President Kamala Harris say that all the time. Uh, you know, we have an obligation and responsibility. And so uh, what I, what I, and I, and I really mean this because, um, you know, you may have the highest ranking position, you know, a, a white male may, may occupy the highest ranking position, but make no mistake about it, position is not power. Position is not power. May give you that extra little authority to do more, or you have the imprimatur of the title, but power is what you're able to do in terms of, you know, just uh, delivering results and really trying to work through, you know, some of our most daunting challenges. And when I say don't minimize what you bring to the table, every experience you've had in life, and uh, I'm going to actually um, give you a homework assignment because I was given this assignment early on uh, when I was thinking about running for office, and I still go back to it. And that is, um, you're all here on campus, you're all here thinking about your future, but um, when you um, have a moment, just think about writing a two-page bio about yourself. that has nothing to do with the work that you do, but who is the essence of you? And you will find that you will be in touch with your values, maybe even some of the life events that have been catalysts for, you know, the journey that you're on now. Uh, but those things will be core to you in terms of how you will be connecting with others, in terms of how you will be looking at charting your path for the future and what you're passionate about. And uh, I uh, still do this to, uh, to this day where I kind of revisit that every now and then. And I will say for me, being a daughter of immigrants is really important. Uh, you know, having that early voice and creating that voice, not just for myself, but on behalf of many of the non-English speaking um, neighbors that my parents had when I was growing up on the west side of San Francisco. Uh, my father not having health insurance and dying at a very young age of 63 from kidney failure had a huge impact on me. Uh, being a product of public education where I didn't speak English until I entered kindergarten. And so I so revered my public school teachers who just, you know, took just took me under their wings, and and here I am. I mean, I'm probably the last person that should be serving in a statewide constitutional office. And then looking at how my father, who apprenticed in the laundry business in San Francisco Chinatown, after coming here from China at the age of 14, um, and where his service came from, you know, there was his path to becoming a citizen uh, was to enlist in the United States Army during World War II. You can't even fathom that. Didn't speak English. There was a munitions specialist speeding artillery through a machine gun. Uh, standing in a ditch. And so all those things to shape my outlook with respect to um, just who I am, the values that I carry with me in terms of service, uh, the ultimate service, obviously, from my father serving this country, but also about how 
um, the fact that those who actually go lacking a lot of the benefits, um, I mean, I think that is our collective work, is to be sure everyone has a shot of being successful and thriving. Okay, so that leads us right into our next question. Thank you so much, both of you. Um, so as a student, this is for me and Isa, as a student activist, what inspires you to be engaged in our democracy and in politics today when it can be so overwhelming? And what advice would you give to students who are trying to do the same? So um, I can go first if you don't mind. So just your story inspired me to share mine today. So um, being being an African-American student here on Berkeley's campus, it's only 3% population. And it's so overwhelming at times, you know, working within the ASUC and then being a Black Student Union intern, I look at it from both sides, my community's perspective, as well as, you know, the, the community as a whole. And I, I I can say a lot of times it can be overwhelming, especially when you're only you're the only one in the room. And, you know, sometimes you don't know if you should speak up or if you should just sit back and listen. And one thing I can give to students who come from marginalized communities or anyone in general is just to remember your why. You know, I feel like a lot of times when we get into spaces where we're the only person, we are afraid to speak up because we don't see people who we can identify with. So remembering your, remembering your why is so important and remembering your story on what brought you to Berkeley? Everything that you go through in life, you didn't go through it just to say, oh, I went through it, I made it over, and I'm overcome. Those barriers are to um, help shape you into the person that you can grow into. And, you know, you learn as you go. And if you, there's a saying that says, if you go through it, you, as you grow, you, as you go through it, you grow through it. So I just can always say, just remember your why for students. If you want to get involved on campus, in the community, and don't be intimidated. I feel like a lot of times in society, ageism, a lot of people can use ageism against you if you're not having, you know, experience or exposure. But when does it start? And I believe it starts when you're able to step up into spaces where you're not, the, where you're the only one and you're able to, you know, have a seat at the table for yourself that will create seat at the tables for others who may look like you or identify with you as well. Yeah, and I think, you know, in a similar breath that the general community of young people holds so much power, not just electorally, but socially speaking. You know, we see in Florida right now, there are so many bans against young people's rights, specifically related to education. And um, personally, I'm currently helping organize what is called Walk Out to Learn in Florida happening next Friday. And it is slated to be one of the biggest protests of the year. Um, and students are walking out to protest these education bans at every high school and college in Florida. And I think that that is a perfect demonstration of how the young demographic does not have to be complacent with what the people in power are doing and affecting us with. And so I think that what motivates me is the fact that we shouldn't be complacent with what these people in power are doing just because they're older than us, just because they have more experience than us, because we are still members of a society that we should be able to have an influence on. And so in that sense, I really encourage everyone to get involved, whether that be in local government, which of course, has such a significant impact on your day-to-day -day lives, but also look into what organizations are doing work that you're interested in, because there will always be an opportunity available if you go and seek it. And you shouldn't just wait around for an opportunity to come if you care about something. And so I think that is definitely something that I try to spread knowledge of as much as I can. But in 
enough about us. <laughs> of course, we love getting to know your experiences as we take inspiration from them. And so, Betty, what was the impact of growing up in an immigrant household um, had on your outlook on the world and throughout your career? And what advice would you give to other first-generation students as they navigate college and their careers? No, mm -hmm. yeah, God's as you're uh, asking me the question, I just immediately flash back to a point in my youth where um, I had a period of where I felt embarrassed being a daughter of immigrants. You know, I was different and um, not necessarily um, fully embraced and accepted. You know, my English was um, developing. Um, I didn't get involved in school activities. Um, I had to come home every day and help my parents set their laundry and dry cleaning business. And so in, some many, in so many ways, being a little bit of an outsider. Um, but looking back now, best job I ever had, working the counter of my parents' laundry and dry cleaning business. Um, you know, you learn about the inner workings of a business. You learn how to interact with vendors. You know, learn the business of running a business. And, um, and not only that, but, you know, my parents' customers, I mean, I didn't have to get a good report card for my parents. I had to get a good report card for all their customers as well. So pressure was on. Um, but I, I look at that and... Um, and I think about how you turn hardships into opportunities, right? And so, yeah, I, if I couldn't negotiate a good price of, you know, for a gross of buttons for my mother who did all the alterations, it probably meant that we couldn't have that carton of milk in the refrigerator that week. And so I learned the value of a dollar pretty early on. And, um, you know, we grew up poor. There were six children altogether. And so the, it's a blessing to know that, um, you know, when we have these life experiences at the time, uh, they are hardships. Sometimes they are, they present days that are sometimes dark and overwhelming. But at the same time, um, if we can lean into them and know that they can help create opportunities as well, and that that becomes part of your portfolio of lived experiences, uh, it's an awesome thing. It's an awesome thing. And that will also shape, um, as I talked about, that two-page bio uh, will um, also reflect that with respect to just some of the values that get uh, honed. Uh, going through those experiences. Thank you for sharing. Yeah. Thank you so much for sharing that. Moving into the next question, what challenges have you faced while holding public office and how can young people who are getting the torch passed to them be aware of how to deal with these challenges? I'll, I'll start. Uh, being the mayor of Oakland when Donald Trump was elected president, that was a hardship. Mm -hmm. um, actually, you know, I always say that being the mayor of a city, it is your job to kind of hold the trauma of the city. And um, I would say Oakland has more than its fair share. And I could talk about a lot of different instances, but I, I, I think I'll talk about that one because I hope it's also um, a message of hopefulness. Uh, I think, you know, we, there are a lot of things that can make you really angry and make you almost hopeless. Uh, when Donald Trump became the president, um, I, I felt a lot that way, uh, just what he represented. I just felt like all the values that make me love Oakland, this man was trying to destroy all of that. And on top of that, there was so much anger in our community that people were literally like rioting in the streets and, you know, vandalizing uh, small businesses of, of immigrants residents uh, in our city, like a double whammy. The one thing I will say, because it, it can be frustrating, I think there are two things to remember. One, with technology today, 
you can be an activist outside of California. Uh, in the election, I personally, and I did not tell anybody I was the mayor of Oakland. I phone banked in Texas. I phone banked in Pennsylvania. I just pretended like I was Libby down the street. Um, and, and to connect to people about why it was important to vote, to hear the hardships that they had gone through, reminds you why democracy is precious. Because it really isn't about expensive TV ads. It is about personal and human connection. The second thing that gave me hope, even during the dark, horrible Trump years, is that our system of government has checks and balances, and that while the federal government is going in the wrong direction, the state government can say, we have an independent right, and even the city government can say, we have an independent right to not follow your immoral path. And Oakland definitely, you know, we leaned into the fact that we are a sanctuary city. Uh, I nearly went to jail. Uh, you know, I got called out personally by the president. But, you know, you talked about those moments that make you feel grateful. When I would be in just the most random places and people would come up to me in the grocery store or the person working the sound at a, an event would come up to me afterwards with, with tears in their eyes and say, Thank you for protecting my family. And thank you for seeing us. And to know that we as a city and as a state had that power to articulate our own values, even when the president of the United States was going in a different direction. So don't just you know, be against and protest. Remember, you can also be proactive. If the level of government is messing up, go to the next one in town. If you don't like what is happening in other states, get on the internet, get on the phone, connect with people. You know, I think one of the things that has been lost and why I have so much respect for Libby um, when she served as mayor of Oakland is um, the art of governance. You know, where we're really focused on delivering results, right? So we're working within a, the, 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 the rubric of a set of laws and, and, and trying to you know, deliver uh, results and, and programs and services to people. And I think for, for um, young people getting started, that's often underestimated. And that it's fine that we share kind of the vision of where we want our communities to be at the 30,000 foot level. And I don't know that there's a lot of disagreement about where we may want our communities to be, but how do you make it happen? How do you make it happen? And I think um, it takes time. And it's the one thing that I hope we can all just try to uplift again, and that is uh, the respect for time, the time that's required to make meaningful change. And when I think about just some of the early work I've done as a in public service, I was relating this earlier, Back in 1988, I had my first bill signed as a young staff member in Sacramento, and it was because of something I saw on the streets, and that was to allow the state to actually be able to blend funding to serve people who had both a diagnosis of substance abuse and mental health. We don't even think about that today. Back then, it was novel, and Governor Duke Majun actually heard me out. I got to meet with him, and he signed the bill. And uh, today, what we're dealing with in terms of our um, unsheltered population, for any homeless um, program provider, um, when somebody comes through their door looking for services, uh, they essentially have to map out 
all the issues that that person is experiencing and trying to figure out the funding source that is going to actually address that issue. We can do better than that. And so the, the attention to detail, the intention to implementation, the intention to delivery, I find it fun because I'm kind of a wonk. Libby, I know, finds it fun as well. But think how transformative that could be for the person who actually needs our services. And the other thing I will say that since the COVID pandemic, um, I do believe this is true as much as um, you know, government and our democracy is under attack. But I do believe the pandemic actually restored people's faith in their government. We were there. We never shut down. I mean, I know my office payments never got delayed. Everyone got paid. It was, you know, we became known as the fiscal first responder, you know, during the pandemic. But I do think that there was kind of this renewed um, sense of confidence about government being there. And uh, and I think that's the best thing we can be striving for is just the fact that, um, you know, the government often is the backstop to a lot of the issues that we are having some challenges trying to address. And so that's that attention to the art of governing and really focusing on implementation is so, so key. I couldn't agree more. And I want to make sure that we make some time for Q&As from the audience. So just as a last question for all of us, you know, we are seeing some heavy polarization in politics right now here in our country, and it's having a lot of grave impacts on people's rights, for example. And so given that, is there anything that has recently inspired you or given you hope for our democracy? I I will say that... Um... You know, when all of the um, anti-Asian hate was, uh, you know, really rampant in the early days of the pandemic and continues to this day, unfortunately, what gave me a lot of hope, and this is something very specific to my community, the API community, we're not known to be people that take to the streets. Uh, but the fact that we saw multi-generations of uh, APIs out on the street protesting uh, the solidarity that we felt with so many other communities who stood right beside us. Um, that to me, um, you know, Libby talked about trauma and Oakland, you know, obviously having uh, its share, but, you know, there's so much unaddressed trauma um, that we still need to work through. And I don't know how you work through that without um, standing with others who have experienced similar um, things. And so um, that gives me hope. That gives me hope that uh, on everyone's own, you know, kind of volition that they wanted to come together, be in allyship, be in solidarity. And it's the only way, frankly, we're going to ever fight back hate and uh, discrimination and all the ugliness that we see right now. Being here gives me hope. Yeah. Period. Well, although I agree, <laughs> I would also like to add, you know, that I think, like I mentioned earlier, that young people give me hope, Generation Z give me hope, because I think we've proved time and time again that we will not let our voices be silenced, even when people are trying to do that. And I think that our determination to do that long term is what's going to change the world. Yeah. Um, I will personally say that um, over the summer, past summer, I had a chance to work on a bill with, um, not directly with Akilah Weber, but with Blue Educational Foundation. And we partnered with Akilah Weber and some of her team members. And the bill was AB 2774. And this was a, it, the bill basically was to um, help African-American students receive more funding when it comes to meeting the English language arts and math, mathematics standards as we were one of the lowest performing subgroups not meeting this standard. And this was the first time I was actually able to see change like happen right in front of me. I went to give a Me Too, uh, a, a Me Too testimony and I saw so many African-American leaders stand outside of the Capitol in Sacramento and, you know, 
statewide this bill should pass. And the bill passed that day. And, you know, it was just a, it gave me hope because it showed that my community is continuing to fight for what is needed for not for students. And that has helped me gain a passion for youth advocacy today. Definitely. Well, I guess we'll take some questions from the audience now. So the one I have here is asking, what advice do you have for people, especially young people who want to get involved but don't have the financial resources and connections to do so? And I, I really thank whoever asked that question for that because I was an intern um, in Washington, D.C. last summer. Um, and unfortunately, I was not able to be paid at the agency I was at because they weren't receiving enough funds from Congress. And so I think that there are a lot of opportunities similar to that available to students that simply don't make it accessible for students in the first place. And so I guess in your personal experiences, what do you um, advise students? Mm -hmm. uh, so I um, got my start in Sacramento as a fellow to the California State Senate. And uh, this is through the uh, California Fellows Program through um, CSU Sacramento. And uh, you do get paid a stipend, and they've actually increased it now, so you can actually afford a place to live in Sacramento. Uh, but it is a 10-month fellowship where um, you will be assigned to a Senate office, either a committee, a policy committee, or um, a um, member's personal uh, staff. And um, I think it's a great opportunity because you'll also receive master's degree credits um, towards um, whatever master's program you want to pursue. And it is um, one of those programs where you get a very uh, deep, in-depth, first-hand look at how the legislative process works. Uh, and in some ways, as fellows, you get to see more than what many longtime staff have seen over the course of their careers. So I would highly recommend the fellowship programs. Uh, the other thing I would recommend is um, think about what you can do locally. Uh, doesn't mean that you have to be um, far away to really uh, put your talent to work. Uh, there are many, many local governments who are looking for um, to appoint youth to commissions and boards. Um, so that experience is also valuable. Uh, working on a campaign, as uh, yes, uh, some of my fellow panelists have talked about, um, eye-opening. If you're thinking about running for office especially, definitely work on a campaign. They would love to have you. Some campaigns do have paid positions as well. Uh, and then the last thing I would say is... Um, you know, I uh, if it's not um, just getting that kind of experience, uh, think about continuing your training outside of the academic setting. So if you are thinking about running for office, um, I mean, the program that Libby is heading up now, Emerge for Women especially, uh, running is a fantastic program, just to give you the nuts and bolts of what it's going to take to run successfully for office at all levels. Uh, but uh, there are always just kind of different opportunities to just uh, look at uh, how to uh, get more experience. I am such a big believer in informational interviews. And don't think you need to know the person. Um, you can cold email someone, cold call an office and just say, I am a student at UC Berkeley. I'm so inspired by the work you're doing, or I'm really interested in pursuing a career like the one you have. Would you give me 20 minutes on the phone, or now you can say on Zoom, just to tell me a little bit about your career path. Can I tell you us old, can I just say we're old? old. We're a little old. Older. 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 Okay. <laughs> we, we, believe it or not, we still live for that stuff. Yeah. We do. We love like sharing this. Like, did I just not bore you with my life story? Like before we even started here, like 
ask people for informational interviews. I cannot tell you how many informational interviews I have done that turned into paid jobs later. Yeah. Often not on the spot, but down the road, it, it ended up being a job offer. Um, and those don't take, you know, they're not going to take a lot of time, but, but do not be shy. Like, does anyone want to have an informational interview with the former mayor of Oakland? No one's interested. All right. Both of you <laughs> done. You've got it. 20 minutes of my time, both of you. All right. All right. We're on. So do that, do that. And, and I, when I got my first job in politics, um, I always thought that politicians only hired, um, their donors, children or people they knew, or people who volunteered on their campaigns. It turns out that is not true. Um, you don't actually have to know someone to get a paid job. And I was actually shocked. I didn't even know that Oakland City Council members had AIDS and they actually paid pretty well. So um, just, and, and in my office, when I was a mayor, I remember one of the last hires we made, this guy just cold emailed my chief of staff, just saying, I really love what your office does. I'd love to come work for you if there's ever an opportunity. I, I didn't know this guy from Adam and we ended up hiring him. So don't assume that you need connections. The best connection you have is your passion. When you told me about how you feel about Fontana, California, in your community, when you told me how you connected with the work that Courage is doing and George Calvez, like, like I'd hire you. And also, if you see an unpaid internship, go after it and then tell them, I can't afford to take this without some pay. Is there any way you think you could find me funding? Don't, don't always take no for an answer. Like, it, it is out there. Just your passion is your ticket. It's the it's better than any connection. And we have LinkedIn now. So <laughs> LinkedIn is Take amazing. advantage of that. So we have one last question from the audience. And it's how do you manage holding onto trauma and the burdens of the people you serve? How do you deal with burnout or navigate other things that may impact your motivation to keep fighting for others? Well, from a student perspective, I feel like everyone here burns out one way or another. <laughs> Unfortunately, that is a bit of a reality at UC Berkeley and a lot of college campuses. But what I will say is that I feel like in the past few years on the campus, I've learned how to rest. I've learned what rest means. You know, I saw somewhere the other day, um, someone said, you know, if you're on vacation or you're taking some a moment of rest in your day, but you're still perpetually stressed about getting to whatever you have to do afterwards, that's not actually rest. And so I think that being more mindful with ourselves and with what we're stressed about and how we can manage that and also just being honest with those that we work with. I feel like I've made it a habit to try to tell my team that I work with in the ASUC, like, hey, I have a busy week this week. Who can help me? balance that workload we have. Or um, even with my professors or my GSIs, I'll tell them, you know, like, hey, like I have a paper due the same day as the one for this class. Can I get a little bit of wiggle room? And they're understanding because they've gone through that too. And so I encourage every student and anyone that's not a student even to really try to be mindful with yourselves first. Yes. And I'll say, um, just piggybacking off of what you say, said is to communicate, 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 and ask for help. 
Before I came to Berkeley, I never asked for help. And I thought like, if I asked for help, people would think I could not do it. It does not mean you can't do it. That's why there's team. That's why you have a team sometimes because you can't all put the workload on yourself. And make sure that you manage your time really well. I believe that's a good, that's a crucial thing. Try to do, at least do one thing a week that makes you happy to remember, you know, maintain your mental health. You know, sometimes it will get overwhelming, but at the end of the day, you have to remember you're human too and you only can do so much. And learn to tell people, um, like, you know, sometimes it's not healthy for you. Like, I don't have the capacity within my schedule to do this at this current moment, but I can find someone else who can help you with this. And when you do that, it's like you're you're not just letting that person down, but you're giving them another alternative that someone who has that resource can help them or someone who's worked on that project can help them and guide them as well. Do you want us to answer too? Yeah, by all means. Of course. Yeah. Um, well, you know, a little melatonin before bed. Uh, and uh, I actually love reading fiction. I feel like it's the way that I can leave my own life and go to somebody else's life and someone else's world. So my love for reading has definitely been kind of like a, a little life preserver. Um, I will say for those of you who choose to, you know, have a position of governmental authority, um, there is hardship that comes with that. Uh, I have lost count of the number of protests at my house and, you know, I have young kids um, and it was, it was hard for the mama bear in me to, um, you know, have grace, um, you know, uh, particularly when things were being protested that either I had no control over or like, I agree with you. <laughs> like I, I would be out there with you. Um and what I would say is I urge everyone to practice radical compassion, radical compassion. When people criticize you or yell at you, and, and even I had some white nationalists come up and protest me, you know, after my ice raid warning. And I actually had this beautiful conversation with one of them that, that totally diffused the tension and created a moment of understanding between us because I tried really hard to understand what was causing his anger and to say, I, I honor why you are angry about that. And when you do that, you can actually listen. And it is so important for those of you who go into leadership, voices of protest and Pain contain wisdom. And as humans, we are, we are programmed like biologically, evolutionarily to fight or flee, right? When we're attacked. And so to practice just radical compassion and really try and hear and understand where someone is coming from and authentically honor their anger also allows you to hear their wisdom. It is hard, it is not natural, but I urge you to do it. And because I really think that is the foundation of leadership. Yeah. I think in addition to that, Libby, is also um, so many of the policies that we're dealing with today necessarily have to be trauma-informed. Um, and it's unfortunate, you know, we are in an era where, and it's at every age level. I mean, whether it's, um, I have senior relatives who, really have become quite despondent since the pandemic because of the social networks being cut off uh, to young people too. And you look at uh, where people are, are um, turning, you know, when they're feeling uh, just so overwhelmed. 
Um, we're not surprised that gun violence is up. We're not surprised that drug addiction is up. We're not surprised at any of these behaviors. And I think for any policies that we're trying to really uh, advance, um, there does have to be there does have to be an element of them being trauma informed, or we're not going to necessarily come up with the best, most effective solutions. And to um, to Libby's point about just you know engaging, you know, and really trying to understand, we're never going to be able to put ourselves in the other person's shoes, but to be able to come to an understanding about where all this is coming from. Uh, so that uh, we have some hope that as we look at how we um, you know move forward together, that there are things that hopefully can make it better uh, for for all of us. So um, it's a challenging time. It's a challenging time. I don't know that I've ever in my 35 year career have had to focus so much on just how much people are hurting around us, um, and some better than others at giving voice to it. Uh, but it is so insidious that I think um, I do question whether you know, much of what we're doing policy-wise is really going to have a impact if we're not uh, addressing some of this. And of course, um, all of you know, we have a, a behavioral health crisis uh, in this nation, uh, not enough providers, not enough support. Uh, but I think um, at the very most basic human engagement level, uh, we all can do our part. Definitely. Do we have any further questions? All right. Well, thank you so much again to you both yes, thank for you joining all. us. Yes, today. Thank you. Please give them a round of applause. And I just want to say a couple final thank yous. Um, so first of all, thank you to all four of our incredible, incredible speakers for giving us their time, uh, especially, you know, their evening uh, to share with our audience, both in person and online, and also all of the students and community members who can watch it on YouTube uh, or in the Commonwealth Club podcast. So definitely check those out um, and share it with your friends. Uh, but for more information about the Vote Coalition, feel free to check out our Instagram at ASUC Vote Co. Uh, or come talk to uh, me after the event. And for more information about the Commonwealth Club uh, and creating citizens, uh, including membership information about all their programs, go to their website, commonwealthclub.org slash events. Uh, and overall, we just want to say a massive thank you to all of you for coming here today. Uh, just, yeah, give yourself a round of applause. <laughs> I hope you all have a little bit more hope about the future of our country and your power as student leaders, as student activists and organizers. Because um, I think as one of the major points I got, at least from listening, is that you know, there's no better time than now to get started. We have the power as young people to be engaged in our communities on campus and off. Uh, so I hope you all you know, feel inspired from today, uh, and we look forward to welcoming you to our next event, which will be some point next semester. So have a good night, everyone. You've been listening to the Commonwealth Club of California. Hear thousands of our podcasts on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, and Stitcher. If you like what you've heard, please consider supporting our work and help us bring 500 programs a year to listeners like you go to commonwealthclub.org slash donate. Think your way around the world with our travel programs to exciting domestic and international destinations. And when you're in the Bay Area, please join us live at our events. Thank you for listening and for your support.